Hello, welcome to Motherhood Out Loud, a safe place for mothers to talk openly about their experiences without fear of judgment or shame. Our hope is for women to realize that we're not alone in the variety of emotions we feel and that we're able to provide a more loving community for future moms. Let's take take our our power back and and live motherhood out loud. With Carla and Cindy. Hello, welcome back. Today we have Maria Birdwell with us. Maria is a military spouse and mother of two children. She had two very different birth experiences with the births of her sons, one in a military hospital in her hometown of El Paso and another in South Korea. Hi, Maria. How are you? Hi, Cindy. How's it going? Pretty good. So me and Carla and Maria all know each other from high school. So just a little background on that. But we haven't talked, at least I haven't talked to Maria in a very long time. I saw her (laughs) at an Albertsons one time. (laughs) That was before I had my son. So uh, we're happy to have you, Maria. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of history. So we go way back in high school. Um, But I'm... El Paso's home to me, but I'm not, I guess, originally from El Paso, born and raised, um, just like I am now. Uh, we are a military family. My father was in the military for 20 years and ended up retiring in El Paso. And so went to school in El Paso, where me and my brothers just kind of called it home, and uh, ended up going to college at the University of Texas at El Paso, where I met my husband, who at the time was at the ROTC program trying to uh, get his courses so he could become an officer in the army. And um, after we met, we got engaged and decided to start a family uh, because his first duty station was in El Paso. And it just made sense for us to start a family in a place where we had help and had that support. So we've been um, together ever since. And now we have two beautiful boys, three and five. And Life is uh life is fun. It's an adventure. Oh my gosh, they're big, three and five. Wow. Yes. Time flies. <laughs> yes. So how were your pregnancies is you know compare the two as symptom wise? Well, I was very fortunate. I had a very, I guess quote unquote normal pregnancy. Um, no issues. They grew pretty normal and um you know, as expected, my symptoms were just very mild. Um, so I'm very lucky in that talking to a lot of moms, you know, I've heard some horror stories and, um, I'm just lucky to have little symptoms. Um, but both pregnancies were fairly the same. I think the biggest pregnant, the biggest difference is having a second child you're dealing with, um, someone else's needs also along with your pregnancy. So the second one, uh, was just a little harder in, you know, sleep and just on my body, but symptom wise, it's, it was pretty good. Oh, that's awesome. And how did you decide where you were going to give birth? Did you ever, um, think about outside of the hospital or did you have any sort of birth plan going into it? So with my first one, I think I talked to a lot of friends who already had kids and kind of got insight from them. And of course, you know, talking to family and people who are experienced. And um, I end up deciding, I think actually, let me take it back a step. So there was an article that came out, I think about the time when I was my first trimester with my first son um, about C-sections going up in a lot of hospitals and 
a lot of hospitals were getting, you know, red flagged or noticed for these unnecessary C-sections. And unfortunately, there was a hospital in El Paso that was actually top in the nation. And talking to some friends who had kids in El Paso hospitals, I just felt, you know, I I knew I didn't want a C-section, especially because I was labeled normal. Like there's no reason for me to need a C-section. Emergency, I understand that's different, but I didn't want to be pushed. Um, So talk to a few friends and then talk to a few different uh, doctors and clinics in El Paso. But at the time, Fort Bliss, the hospital there, they kind of were implementing more of a natural birth. And so if you had a normal pregnancy, they're going to assign a midwife to you as opposed to a physician. And I felt that was better for me in the sense of um, there's, you know, a lot of questions I had and I felt a midwife was more informational um, and I I had more discussion with her as opposed to a doctor in the sense of I don't need to really discuss the growth of my child, but more just what I'm experiencing and if it's normal. Um, And so I felt like the midwife at uh, Fort Bliss was a better fit for me. So I ended up choosing El Paso, um, Fort Bliss for my first pregnancy. Um, To my second pregnancy, I didn't really have a choice. So I was five months pregnant when we decided to go to Korea um, as a family. And the place that my husband was located did not have a full-on hospital. They had a clinic. So you're able to get referred out of that clinic and go to a Korean hospital. And they then give you a list of different hospitals and you can kind of go and visit them and talk to the doctors and the practices and pick from there. Uh, the only situ- the only difference or the main difference was if you did have some sort of high risk, um, I guess, labeling, then you were not allowed to be seen at most Korean hospitals. And so I know that was a real bummer for a lot of moms who either had to kind of come up with a plan B or some of them and decided to go back to the United States to have their kid. Uh, And that I totally understand the sense of the support system as well. So, but I decided to go with a hospital in Korea. It just felt right. And they were very, um, they were very great at answering all my questions. And I always have a million questions when it comes to everything. So I ended up going with, with one particular hospital and was very satisfied with um, the outcome. Oh, wow. And did you create birth plans going into this or, or not really? You kind of just as you went. There were some things I knew I wanted from the get-go from my first pregnancy, you know, skin to skin, uh, if possible, delayed cord cutting. I wanted to nurse uh immediately or as soon as I could. And then I also wanted to make sure that my baby was in the room with me. For in El Paso, um, with my first son, a lot of those were already expected and already discussed and encouraged. Mm -hmm. In some hospitals in Korea, they do some things differently, uh, just culturally different. So for example, it's not really normal for the baby to be in the same room with the mother. And that's mm-hmm. just, I, from what my understanding is they want to take care of the moms, make sure she's fully rested. So they put the baby in the nursery. And if you want to see your child um, every couple hours, you kind of request it. Other than that, they take care of you um, a full on Korean. And I'm not hundred percent sure if this is true. So, um, but a full on Korean pregnancy, or I guess uh, postpartum care is supposed to be extended to two weeks. And the two weeks is just focusing on the mother, getting her body back, certain, you know, massage, muscling, make sure 
her mental and physical health is, you know, ready to go. So her and the baby are a little more prepped into going on their own. Um, mm. But with the insurance, uh, that wasn't really an option for me. It, it would have been nice to experience that, but uh, I was just, I was happy just to, to be in that hospital and have the service that I had. That's awesome. I'm glad it was, well, we'll hear more, but I'm glad it seems positive so far. And yes. did you do anything to prepare for birth? Like, did you listen to read any books, listen to any podcasts or anything like that? Um, because I had a few friends who already went through it, I think I went to them first because I felt they were a little more transparent in their experience. And um, I was extremely grateful for that, you know, uh, but yeah. some blogs and posts. Um, I kind of just looked at for more specific questions, you know, for example, um, nursing, you know, if you're, if you get a milk clog or you, what's going on with the body kind of look at different ways, but I was very also lucky to have my mom and my mother-in-law kind of help and guide me in mm. their experience. And so they taught me some stuff that I felt was more natural, you know, the medicinal kind of, uh, old wives tale that they brought, you know, one of, one example would be like put lettuce leaf, um, you know, on your chest to, to kind of help with circulation. And then also lettuce tea, uh, lettuce leaf tea is really good for natural, um, sleep to promote sleep. Uh, it's, I think something that you're able to give to, I'm not sure if an infant, but you know, a child, but you kind of have to do your own reading on that too, because there is some truth to a lot of, um, these, you know, experience and past, uh, yeah, I guess past experience. But one thing I noticed was I need to also do my own reading and talk to physicians if it's a little more, um, complicated. So I, I use mostly doctors and just my own little tribe for advice in my pregnancies. That's great. And I think it's awesome that you went into like the elders of your family and had some advice from them too. And they had some cool, like more traditional ways of looking at things. So can you go ahead and tell us your birth story, starting with your eldest son? Yes. So my oldest son, um, at the time my husband's schedule was pretty crazy. And so it just happened to, uh, that he was having to go to training, uh, Oh, a couple of weeks before my due date. And there was uh, some talk about him maybe not being able to come back. But luckily, um, when my water did break, which I hear is very unusual, I was able to coordinate and get him back to El Paso. And so he made it probably like maybe two hours right before my son, you know, made his entrance to the world. And so it was really uh, nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. My water broke and uh, I was by myself, but being in El Paso, I was able to call for, you know, family. My parents came and at the time I thought it was really weird because I felt no pain whatsoever. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes we get lost in the way Hollywood or movies portrays these, you know, water breaking. So when my water broke, I just felt, you know, sensation of warmth between my legs and I knew, you know, I didn't have an accident. So went to the restroom and I was like, yeah, this isn't, you know, urine. So I uh, called my dad and, you know, he answered and said, I think my water broke. I'm going to drive myself to the hospital. 
I'm perfectly fine. He's like, no, wait for your mom. My mom got there. Um, she was extremely nervous too. So I ended up actually driving myself to the hospital with my mom. <laughs> she was, uh, yeah, she wasn't ready for that, but went in and they just kind of told me, yes, your water did break, but you're not dilating. So we're going to get you in a room and, you know, we'll kind of get you set up, hook, hooked up IV and everything. And I told them, well, I feel fine. You know, is it necessary for me to have the IV? And they said, well, if you want the epidural, then this is necessary. And I told them at the time, well, I'll put the IV in, but I'm not 100% set on the epidural. And they're just like, <laughs> okay, well, this is your first. So we'll respect that, <laughs> which I'm sure they hear a lot of. Um, but after a couple after a couple hours, um, my, I wasn't dilating like I needed to. So they gave me um, Pitocin. Is that the correct? Yeah. Term? Pitocin. Yeah. Pitocin. So they gave me some Pitocin to increase my contractions. Um, as soon as they gave it to me, I started feeling it. And I said, okay, my husband's on his way. I, my mom was doing her best to relax me, but I don't handle pain so well. So I'm the type that just, mm. I don't like to be touched when I'm in pain and um, bless her soul. She was really trying to help me out, but I was just like, no, I think, I think I need the epidural. And most of the pain was in my back. And I don't know if there's any association with menstrual cycle, but that's, you know, the same pain that I had when you have really hard mm -hmm. menstrual cycles, you know, sometimes you get it in the back, the fatigue. So it just felt like I was having a really bad um, menstrual cycle. That's, I guess, mm -hmm. the closest way I could describe it. And then uh, they gave me the epidural as I requested. Uh, a couple hours later, they're just like, okay, you're going to need to start pushing. But for me, it was very unusual sensation to have the epidural because they need you to push at a certain time during a contraction, but you feel absolutely nothing. You don't feel the baby. You don't feel your legs. You feel nothing. So for them, they connected, you know, the monitors and told me, okay, we see a contraction coming. Now you need to push. Um, very interesting feeling and very opposite from, um, my second child, but my husband ended up coming. We, uh, I had a midwife actually deliver my son and it was, you know, he was normal, he was healthy. And so I was really grateful for that, but it was a, it was a pretty good experience despite, you know, all the horrible stuff that could go wrong in a pregnancy and in the, the delivery room. But for my second one, being in Korea, um, I knew when my water broke and actually kind of in encouraged it, if that makes sense. Um, so I, my mom had came to Korea. She flew in so she could help me with my oldest and we were cooking dinner and I was just really done being pregnant. I was, you know, already 30 weeks and I was just done. And I told my mom, I'm going to drink some pomegranate juice and I'm going to go for a walk. I'll be back. Went for a walk, cooked dinner, and my water broke. And so this time, my husband and my mom witnessed, you know, me going through that. And they were kind of freaking out. And I guess, you know, naturally, most people would freak out if you tell them, hey, my water broke. Um, but me, it being my second one, I said, okay, well, I just finished dinner. I really want to eat because I know I'm not going to eat in the hospital. So let's have this dinner. So imagine that moment where I'm telling my mom and my husband to sit down and eat dinner <laughs> while, you know, my body's doing its thing. So, <laughs> so we ended up getting checked into the hospital. It was like five o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, I called the translator. They assign a, I guess, international 
consultant to translate everything. So gave her a call, told her I was in. They confirmed that my water broke. And then they just kind of gave me a room and told me they'll be back in a couple hours. And from the get-go, I was like, what? You're not going to like read me a list of things that I need to do, like what to expect, especially because there was that language barrier. I thought I would be given a little more information through the translator saying, okay, this is what they're going to do from here on. Um, but no, they just kind of let me to it. And I was very relaxed. They said, we just need you to lay down and relax. We understand your body's going through some stuff, but just, you know, take it in. And so I actually got an app in, believe it or not. Um, they didn't connect me to anything. I didn't feel any pain. And then uh, after a couple hours, they said, did you want the epidural? And I said, yes, I'm going to need the epidural. The epidural is very different from the United States um, or at least from the hospital of my, of my first pregnancy. So the epidural in Korea, they put the needle in your back and then they bring a tube around the shoulder and they inject the epidural. So it's meant to, it's not meant to last forever and it will wear off. And they will kind of also gauge how much they're giving you. So I requested it twice um, up until the birth. And I felt the great thing about that was I can feel everything. I just didn't feel the pain. So I, and it was really good for me to push because when they said the baby's coming, I felt the baby, I felt the head, I felt my legs. And so I was able to adjust. So it felt a little more natural. Um, in comparison to the first one. And then one, I guess, other thing that they kind of do in Korea that's normal is they shave you. Um, they shave you and they cut you. And that's just to ensure, I guess, more that the baby's coming out clean. And so I allowed them to shave me, but I told them, you know, I do not want to be cut. Just, just from what I've learned about tearing, you know, you tear the skin naturally it's probably not going to tear as much, but if you cut it and then you tear it, you're going to have more of a rip and it may be unnecessary. And it turns out it was unnecessary. So I just um, kind of told him, I saw the, the doctor, even though he didn't speak English, I saw him hand gesture, you know, cutting of something. And I said, you know, big X, no, thank you. No, thank you. Please don't do it. And uh, turned out they didn't. And my second son was born. And once again, thank God he was uh, healthy and you know, pretty normal. So. And was your husband with you with um, that delivery the whole time? Yes. Which is why my biggest stressor for my second one was first of all, the idea if we were going to go to Korea with him, because when we got, when he got his orders to go to Korea, the option is you can go with your family, but you're required to stay there for two years, or you can go by yourself as a single soldier and just stay there for 12 months. And mm. it was really the first time we'd be separated that long and already having a, our first kid together. I think we decided as a family, I knew what I was getting myself into being a military spouse. Like I said, you know, it's something my mom did. And so I knew like this would be a sacrifice we'd make, but I'd rather make that sacrifice together. Um, mm -hmm. Especially because I didn't know how hard it would be to have a second one. Um, I mean, even like having a second to third one, just a lot of things changed. So I decided to, that we were going to go as a family and, and it was a, a good decision in the end. Yeah. And how was, 
How did he help with when you were in labor? Was he more helpful? Did you feel more comforted? I know with your mom, you were kind of like, don't touch me, even though she was trying her, you know, trying her best to mother you through it. <laughs> yeah. So he was with me the whole time. And um, I think it was easier the second time around because he was with me from the start. You know, he mm -hmm. saw, you know, my body progress, my pain. He saw the needle going in my back. <laughs> for the epidural. Um, I mean, it's one thing to see, it's another thing to experience it. So I, I can't imagine like actually witnessing someone having that big needle, but um, it, it was a lot helpful with him being there. And so that's why we decided to fly my mom in, even though we've only been there for a couple months, because I knew it was either my mom comes in and he comes with me to the hospital, or I go to the hospital by myself and he stays at home with my oldest. This particular hospital was a little more um, strict when it came to having children, guest children in the room. So, you know, they said, if possible, we'd prefer that other kids are not in the room during this time. And I just thought it would be best for, because my son, my first son was, he was almost two. And I can't imagine having a two-year-old in, in a foreign hospital for several hours. So I just, you know, thought it was best. And luckily my mom was able to do it. So we uh, took advantage of that. And mm -hmm. All right, Maria. So I have a question when you were delivering in Korea, because me delivering in a U.S. hospital, that's my only experience. But then I actually had an unusual experience where I just showed up and delivered. Like I was fully dilated. So I didn't get to do the typical, what everybody hears, like, oh, I got to walk around. I got to use like uh, yoga ball or peanut ball, like nothing. So I'm curious, what was your experience laboring in Korea? Um, I think the biggest difference was just like I had mentioned the way they deliver a baby. But as soon as I entered the hospital, um, they did confirm that my water broke. And instead of just kind of checking to see how far I'm dilated and, you know, kind of pushing the pedosin um, because to ensure more contractions, they allowed me to rest a little bit. And when they did check on me every couple hours, they would manually um, kind of dilate me a little more. And I felt that was a better route. And I'm not sure if that's a common practice in the United States or if that's common in Korea, or if it was just my situation. And uh, but I think that was that really helped in my body reacting to you know, getting ready to have a, another child. So we're in the United States. I'm not sure if it's just Pitocin is really the only option. The hospitals are allowed to administer, but it was, I just felt it made it a lot more uncomfortable, especially for our first one. Um, so that was kind of, I guess, the two biggest differences in, in my experience in, in Korea is I felt like they allowed me to listen to my body more. And maybe it was just me in the sense of because I didn't speak the language, they were not bothering me as much. <laughs> That's always a possibility, but right. uh, I just felt like they let me rest a lot and I needed it. So, did they ever give you Pitocin in Korea? No, I'm not sure it's a thing, but they did oh, not. Okay. And how long were both of your labors? They were both. I believe over eight, eight hours. Okay. 
So I delivered. That's, that's pretty. I mean, the next to day. me, that's pretty short. So that's awesome. <laughs> Wait, you you said manually dilating you. Like, can you elaborate on that? Like, I, that's the first time I hear that. That's really good. I um, I guess I, I have no background medically, so I don't know if Cindy, if you're a little more qualified to answer that question. What I'm was the question? I'm putting their hand in you. That's what I'm picturing. Oh, to the manual dilating. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I mean, they go in there and they check with a finger or two, and I don't know if they insert another finger to dilate you, but yeah, they try to. From my understanding, because I obviously don't do like that, insert my hands in anybody, but they uh, can stretch you out a little bit more. Um, I've heard yeah. it's painful. I don't know. I know. I heard it's painful. Was it painful, Maria? Or were you already on the epidural when you when that was happening? Uh, yes, the epidural was already in me, um, but I felt it wasn't painful, maybe because it was my second. Mm-hmm. So that can always be a big factor. Usually, yeah. your first, your body is going through everything for the first time, so it's a little rougher. Yeah, it's funny because I know, like here, like uh, most U.S. hospitals they it's pretty routine that you show up and they automatically not automatically but it feels like it that they insert their fingers to check how dilated you are so i remember when i was going to deliver cassie about a week before i thought my water heart broken but then i was like super pregnant so i just peed myself but at that point i was just feeling a lot of braxton hicks so we showed Mm -hmm. up to the hospital they told me they hooked me up to a monitor and they said like you're having very very mild contractions but we will call them braxton hicks instead of that and i remember at that point in labor and delivery the nurse did manually um check dilation and that was the most painful experience of my life that was horrible like i remember it even scared me a little bit into thinking i was gonna go natural because like when she inserted her fingers it just hurt really really bad like we all got in pap smears, right? Like, it's uncomfortable, but it, to me, it doesn't hurt. So I remember when I went to my regular OB appointment, the morning I deliver, it was my regular appointment, I did tell my doctor, I'm like, she told me, she's like, I'm going to check you for dilation because I know you went to labor and live delivery last week. I just want to see how you're progressing. You're at 37 weeks. And I told her, like, I even tensed up in that appointment. I'm like, don't touch me. Like, it really hurt last time. And then she jokingly said, I feel like those nurses just shoved their hands in there. And sure enough, when my doctor did it, it didn't hurt at all. It felt mm. like a normal check. And so, and I told my doctor, I'm like, that didn't hurt. And she's like, you're barely like one or two centimeters. You're, she did tell me that. She jinxed me. She's like, we still have about two, three weeks. And then I saw her that same night. <laughs> <laughs> and even then, too, when they checked me that same night that I, I was fully dilated when I showed up, I don't know because I was fully dilated, it didn't hurt either. When they told me they were going to check, I remember tensing up because I was in the same L&D mm. and I was like, oh, it's going to hurt again. And that time I'm like, oh, no, nothing hurt. But the first one you were telling me, I was like, I was like, I can't. It just it still gives me like chills thinking about that day because mm-hmm. it, it hurts. I was those pictures like they're inserting your fingers and then it's just spreading them wide. And I'm like, nope, no thanks. Hard pass. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be particular to Korea because I don't think that here it's very encouraged to do that. And if anything, like you know, providers will do it without asking, which is kind of also not right. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm like, that shouldn't be done. Maria, how did it, were you scared with the language barrier? Barrier, Like, was it, 
I don't know. I feel like I would have been intimidated that maybe they're going to do things like when he's telling you like the handsome signal for cut, like you're like, please like, no, like, but to think that maybe he will still, I don't know. So I made sure to have everything written down. I gave it to the translator prior to going in, um, uh, probably by my second trimester when I already knew what I wanted, gave her a list of what I must and must not have for my pregnancy plan. And I think um, I didn't really shop around at too many hospitals, but mm-hmm. this hospital, they allowed, they looked at it and they said, this is all doable. There are some, I guess, hospitals and clinics that, you know, the whole, the baby needs to be in the nursery is more of a standard that everyone should kind of live up to. And that was something I was uncomfortable with, but um, I gave them my list. She translated and make sure the nursing staff had my list of what I wanted. Um, So also like with my second son, I really wanted the delay cutting of the cord, but I guess the cord Mm -hmm. wasn't long enough to place him on me with the attachment. So they said, do we hold Mm -hmm. your baby and cut? And they kind of, you know, when you go to a foreign language, you kind of pick up sign language to a certain degree and so you know doing a lot of hand gestures of like the x no and you know cutting and you know baby hold baby and stuff like that um but it it was really it was really nice in that sense so the language though it was very frightening i uh seemed to pass it and i think a lot of that also has to do with the fact that living in el paso and not speaking spanish you kind of learn you know, to read people's body gestures and hand gestures and kind of communicate in that way. So I guess that was like my second language, you know, a lot of nonverbal gestures. So it was yeah, a little intimidating, true. but, but that, that program or not program, but that, um, that location and the hospital and the military, they, they did a lot to ensure that women have a better experience and pregnancy in that area. Um, so I felt like they did, they had a lot of things set up and in place to ensure that there isn't any issues due to language barrier. And the translator, is she available to you like whenever, or I'm assuming she's not like directly with you, but you could call her at any time. Yeah. So they had a little office at the bottom or the first floor of the hospital. So I go in there and I check in with her and she, you know, walks me through the steps, make sure I have everything signed and paperwork wise with insurance. And then she goes upstairs with me. I see the doctor and she will do some translating um, during the Mm -hmm. ultrasound and says, okay, well, your next appointment is on this date. And so I had that relationship and um, open communication with her. And so when the closer I got to my due date, she was just like, this is my cell phone. You can reach me anytime. And she's like, I mean, literally anytime, you know, if two in the morning, you can get a hold of me. And she was a young mother herself. And so I felt very comfortable and uh, knowing that she knows what I'm going through. And a lot right. of military um, spouses, you know, if it's their first pregnancy, it could be very daunting. But I felt automatically comfortable with her. And I did give her a call and she called multiple times at all hours of the night. You know, I had reached out to her at two in the morning and I said, they just have me resting. Is this normal? And is something going on? And they're just like, no, this is a normal procedure. Your body needs to rest. Like you're fine. I will call the hospital or the hospital will call me if there's any issues, but it's, you're, it's good to go. You are fine. And so that was really nice. 
And wow, so they were pretty hands-off for most of it until the end, I'm guessing, or when you needed your epidural. Yeah, and I, like I said, it's a preference. I mean, every pregnancy mm-hmm. is different. Every mother's different. So for me, with it being my second one, I preferred it that way. But yeah. I don't know if it, if I would have felt the same for my first because the first, I had a million questions. And at that time, you know, you're scared. You're going through a lot of stuff that so you don't know what's happening. They're making recommendations you've never mm-hmm. heard of. So that could be very daunting. But I felt I had a little more idea of me understanding my body as well. So mm-hmm. when I felt something, I communicated that I felt a little more effectively the second time around. And how long were your pushing stages for both? For my first, I think they had me push for probably about an hour. It was under an hour. And um, I think that process just took a little longer, like I said, because epidural, I didn't have that sensation yeah. of being able to control my body. Um, so it was more them guiding me. And the second one, I think they came in, I don't know, maybe like 10, 15 minutes. They're like, okay, you're fully mm-hmm. dilated. Let's get the doctor. And the doctor came in and I pushed a few times. I was kind of able to maneuver my belly a little bit. Um, and they kind of recommended me to as well, you know, if you feel it, you know, kind of just push down, help the kid, you know, guide his way out. Uh, so the second one was a lot shorter and the recovery time was a lot easier. But like I said, I didn't, you know, have it cut and I didn't rip. So that's, I think the biggest, um, struggle when facing postpartum physically dealing with that. Did you tear with the first one? Yes, I did. Uh, a natural tear. But was I didn't a, feel it because of the epidural. Was it a pretty, like, bad tear? Um, I I can't, like, really compare it to anything else, and I don't know what other moms experienced, but um, it was significant enough to notice. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're like, it made a big difference in my recovery. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And I think that was another thing that I liked too was for the second one, um, having my postpartum in Korea, they respected the fact that I wanted my baby in the room with me. Um, But they came in and they have their, what their, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a soup. It's a seaweed soup that is made and Korean mothers drink it 24 seven. And it's supposed to have mm. all these vitamins and proteins. And that's just like a Korean culture thing. But it's there is some, you know, scientific proof that, that it does help the body. So they gave me a lot of that, a lot of porridge and come came in every couple hours and massaged me. Um, so I felt mm. like they took they put a lot of emphasis in caring for me after I had the baby, where my experience in the United States was a little different as, you know, we need to make sure this baby's eating. You, We need you to track, you know, diaper changes and is it eating on the left side, right side, how much? And so they were, they had a lot of concerns for the baby, which, you know, is good. <laughs> but I just right. felt in Korea, that was the biggest change postpartum was they took care of me. And that was nice. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's nice. I mean, I feel like that's important too, you know, the mom matters as well. So that's good that they focused on you a lot. Um, And then going into your postpartum experiences, how were they? 
you know, becoming a new mom and then becoming a mom of two? Uh, with the first one, I didn't have as much postpartum. And I think that's just me comparing the first to the second. So for the first one, mm -hmm. dealing with um, trying to breastfeed, I think was my biggest concern. It was something that my mom kind of encouraged me to put a lot of emphasis on. And I did, but, um, and I'm grateful for it, but it wasn't easy. You know, you're very tender and you could have this child just going down, you know, chow down every two hours. Um, so I, it was a little hard in that sense. I felt physically, I went through a lot more postpartum trauma than mental. I think for the second one, given my situation, being abroad, having two, um, kids at a very young age, being alone, uh, that took more of a mental toll on me. And so after a while, I think, I think what it is, is just finding that village and finding that community, whether it's, you know, bloodline, your family, um, talking to your parents or a sibling or reaching out a friend. And I was lucky to have a lot of friends who already went through it. So I kind of reached out to them occasionally after my first one and said, hey, this I'm going through this like, is it normal? You know, I'm feeling this way. Is it normal? And not so much that I wanted everything to be normal, but to know that I was on the right track. Because sometimes, especially mm -hmm. after the first couple of nights, I mean, you have very little sleep. So your brain isn't functioning like it should or like you want it to. And sometimes your thoughts just eat at you. And so um, so I had that more the second time. And like I said, the first was a lot of physical postpartum. And how, what, how long did your mom stay with you in Korea? I had her stay for a month. And the way I kind of planned it out was it was two weeks so based on my due date, two weeks before and after, um, but she mm. came in for, I think a week. And that's when I was like, I'm ready to have this baby kind of encourage the, the baby to come. And, uh, mm. and then, so she was there for another three weeks. Oh, wow. Perfect timing then, huh? She was there yes. for <laughs> a lot of support yes. postpartum. And, yeah. And I think the, the scary thing was at the time, like if, if she was going to make it, because mm -hmm. you never know. I mean, due dates are not like for sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's an right. estimate. And so I was a little nervous, like thinking, well, if I have this baby before, what's our plan B? Like I said, we had just arrived to the country. And so we didn't really have any, you know, community built yet. And I didn't really know anyone to enough to like tr entrust them that I could take my older son with them if I had to go to the hospital or anything like that. Um, and I think that was my biggest fear. I, at the time, I had very little distance with my son. I mean, he wasn't in any sort of childcare part of that. And I was definitely a mama bear. So mm -hmm. I didn't want anyone else to care for him if it wasn't my mom um, or my husband. And and that's just, you know, I, the way I grew up and um, being in Korea, not knowing anyone or anything no other option made sense to me or I was comfortable with. So, Right. Yeah, because you were just there for such a short time. And how is it building like community in the military when you guys move around so much? 
and just kind of building that tribe for yourself. Because I find it difficult and I'm in the same place. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, the military does really great at promoting and encouraging and creating the community. So they have a lot mm. of programs within an installation to kind of encourage spouses, moms, single soldiers to kind of get together and share their story. And when you're in a foreign country, you know, you kind of just stick with people who speak your language. And so that ends up being most military spouses. And I didn't really seek that community because I didn't think it was necessary until probably three months after I had my second son. And I was just mentally, it was taking a toll on me. Um, Where we lived, I didn't have the ability to really explore like I wanted to because I had a two-year-old and then Mm -hmm. I was pregnant. So going and adventuring out just didn't seem like an option to me. But in reality, looking back on it, I think I would do it all over again and enjoy Korea with my kids as opposed to seeing like, I can't go anywhere because I have these two kids um, with me. Mm. And so after I said, okay, I need friends, like it just came down to that. I need, I need a support system. And with the time difference being from the United States to Korea, I was calling on a lot of friends, you know, I was talking to my mom most, almost every other day and it was nice, but you need someone there with you. So the military, um, most places, even in the United States, they they have a lot of groups um, where you can kind of be part of. And then, of course, like Facebook is a really good place to go, kind of go and find, you know, mommy groups within a certain location. So I seeked that, seeked the resources, and luckily I kind of found my tribe. And, and when you were in El Paso with your first son, did you seek military friends or were you just kind of relying on the friends you already had at home? I was relying just on family. And I think at the time that was kind of what I needed. I did have friends who had kids prior and I went kind of reached out to them occasionally. But after I had my first, I felt like I had no time or the timing was wrong. You know, I'm up at two in the morning and I want to reach out to someone and, you know, I kind of can't, but it was, it was just, I felt like it was easier in Korea to build that community than it was in El Paso. And El Paso is also one of those places where a lot of families come from multiple generations, you know, and they're all very close. So I was very close to my mom, but I don't really have an extended um, bloodline, or I guess you could say, or family in El Paso. So she was kind of like my only outlook, her and my mother-in-law. But if I could do it again, I'd probably reach out to more friends who were going through what I went through. And there were a few. And did you have any postpartum depression or anxiety? With the second one, yes. With the first one, I had a little bit of anxiety. um, And I think that's just you know, the normal, what what happens if, you know, the when you're in the hospital, I want to make sure that their heart rate is where it needs to be. Um, trying to understand what the doctors are telling you, because sometimes they tell you things and you understand it to a certain degree, but it almost seems like another language. Um, so the anxiety was definitely there the first time around. The second time around, mm-hmm. after I got comfortable with where I was going to deliver and how that was going to work out, Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't have any concerns, but 
postpartum mentally and lack of socialization the second time around was, was rough. Right. And what was the biggest, I guess, transition from one to two for you? I know a big thing was the lack of socialization, but in terms of at home, what, what did you feel was the biggest change? I mean, I feel like your whole world turns upside down again, but. (laughs) Well, you know what? And I've heard people say it gets easier, um, Mm -hmm. you know, from one to two, from two to three, from three to four, uh, at some point it must get hard, but (laughs) but for me, it felt easier the second time around because first of all, my body was already used to not sleeping a lot. And so when I'd wake up every two hours, it didn't affect me as much because I was waking up that, you know, that was my routine routine anyways. And um, I had both kids in diapers. And so that was a little rough. I attempted to do cloth diapers with my second one. Um, mm-hmm. That was a... Uh, <laughs> That was interesting. So I think that the transition, um, the biggest changes is more of just entertaining the second one or entertaining the first one mm. while you're with the second one. Um, so I think there are a lot of different ways to get creative with that and just really what you're comfortable with. I was, I stayed inside um, most of the time. We had a park right next door, but once again, being overseas, I wasn't like as familiar with the area to just go somewhere and have my oldest burn some energy. Um, So I kept him entertained for the most part indoors. Um, I I think, I don't think there was that really that big of a drastic change from one to two more. There was more of a change from zero to one. Right. I was going to say, like, it's like what are you that. missing? Like, if you haven't slept in two years, what is another year of no sleep or not doing anything? You know, because I, this is like something that it's gotten easier now that Cassie's a little bit older and she can, like, get herself in her car seat and I just buckle her in. But, you know, like, when you were able to just, like, grab your wallet and go to Starbucks without planning anything. And now it's like, do I have water? Do I have snacks? Do I have a toy? And I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're already doing it with one, just throw the other one in a carrier and let's go. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is with the first one, you do a lot of research and seeing like, what are the babe, the best baby products or, you know, the stuff that I need. And then you like kind of mm. test and experiment with like different strollers and different, you know, I don't know, bags or whatever. So for me, I felt like I already knew what was mandatory and I had more confidence mm-hmm. going into raising two instead of one because the four, first one's still alive. Yay me. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> now it's just about, you know, handling two. And one thing that I was a lifesaver for me that I didn't use in my first one, and it probably wasn't as necessary, was a baby carrier that had a seat. And that just really helped me coordinate. You know, I got one kid in a stroller and one on my chest. And my second one, when I started getting out and exploring Korea a little more, he basically lived on me. And luckily he was a real good kid to where he wasn't too fussy. He loved, you know, just kind of hanging out there. We'd go to places that turn him around. He Koreans, they loved him. I mean, they love babies. <laughs> I got so much chocolate from him. <laughs> that's that's, that's a, a, another thing I think the biggest difference between the United States and Korea, and I still feel it today, is the approach strangers take to you. So 
I feel it's mm. kind of in the United States, if you're in a park, you kind of, you're to yourself you're and your kids, you're, you're minding your own business. And if a kid comes, if a, an adult comes up to your child and starts talking to you, you kind of question it or you kind of step in and say, oh, what's going on? You know, just want to make sure everything's okay. In Korea, I felt it really helped my anxiety. My, I felt my kids were always being looked after. So whether I was on the subway or I was walking down the street, um, people always went out of their way to help me, you know, whether it was like helping me go up some stairs, which I'm perfectly mm. capable of, you know, even the elderly, they were just like, oh, let, let me help you, you know, sit down there, give their seats. And um, I'd go shopping to the markets and they'd give me free fruit, you know, for the little one. And I, my kid got a dollar or a couple bucks <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> It's just, it, that's just like culturally, that's how it, it is. You know, they'll come. I had my, my son on my chest and walking around and I had a blanket over him to block the sun out while he was resting and they'd come and they'd just kind of peek in there and say, oh, how cute. And, you know, I allowed it because I thought they were being very genuine where I feel in the United States, if someone were to like, you know, touch my child, I'd feel a little more, hey, you know, let's keep a little more distance. It's not something you, uh, mm -hmm. you do, but I think that was one of the biggest changes culturally. So coming back to the United States, having to reteach myself, um, you know, these are how, this is how some things are done, but also teaching my kids, you know, yes, I know you got candy by a lot of strangers in Korea, <laughs> but it's a little different here. Um, so kind of teaching that cultural shift within myself and within my children. Yeah, that's so interesting, but that's so sweet that in the Korean culture, they're um, so into children like that, like so genuinely nice because I feel like I've had the problems here where like they won't even say hi, like and they will be saying hi to someone and my son is very shy and he doesn't really talk like, you know, and he'll like, I know that that took a lot out of him to like say hi to someone and for them to just ignore him, I'm like, come on guys like you don't have to like be all like oh my gosh but you could at least wave back like just wave and keep it moving but I would yeah I feel like I would have been so happy for like people to be more receptive to my son um how how was your marriage when you went from no kids to one kid and then one kid to two kids was there a lot of dynamic changes or I don't oh yeah Oh, yeah, definitely naturally. Um, I felt the biggest thing was, you know, communicating that, communicating what I needed um, at the time. And I think that was something that has, I've grown into getting more comfortable expressing myself in that way. Um, and I think my husband, he's really great at like encouraging me to voice my thoughts and concerns because sometimes I you know, the, my pride takes the best of me and I just, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear it type of thing, but he's just like, I don't know what you're going through. Like you have to be, mm. you know, you have to give me the insight. If you don't want to, then you're choosing not to share. And so that was a hard pill for me to swallow. But in the end, um, I think that is what's really allowed us to become great partners is opening up and communicating, this is what I need. And this is what I feel. And even to this day, you know, sometimes I'll just say, um, 
whether it's, you know, that time of the month or just the stresses of work, I communicate, you know, today is not a day to, to jump the sarcasm, you know, <laughs> if you want to make a joke, please don't let me be the, the butt of the joke because um, there will be consequences because I'm just not there mentally to, <laughs> to take it. Um, so kind of expressing that. Mm. And also with my first, um, even though I had some time off from work, my husband, he had very little time off. And so um, I was grateful that he kind of took some of that burden too. And he, he was really there for me and encouraging me and telling me what I um, needed to hear to push through the hard stuff. One of the times I remember very vividly was, uh, I think it was probably, you know, second day of being home. I was trying to nurse. And at that point, it was just, it felt impossible to go through. So I was kind of holding him and I told him, I was like, this feels harder than actual labor. Like it's, you know, you're having to endure a lot more often that sort of pain and then even then like you try I I know you can take some stuff for pain when you're nursing I really tried not to and um, also tried not to allow like my thoughts to get dark in the sense of that guilt building up or the I can't do this you know I it's really hard it's not fair that I'm going through all this and you're not And so expressing that instead of him getting very defensive, him saying like, I understand you are going through this, you know, by yourself to a certain degree, but use me where you can. And so, and that's up to me to, like I said, communicate what I needed. Um, But it's definitely allowed us to grow in our marriage, you know, being a parent. And um, I think that's just the biggest change is I've learned a lot about myself having kids and you learn a lot about your partner and how they handle stress Mm -hmm. and certain things. So a lot of growth and you just want to make sure you're both on the same page when you're going through this growth together. Cause I think that's where a lot of issues happen is some people are growing, they're growing in different ways or things aren't not being communicated, you know, well, I'm feeling this way and he's not doing anything about it. Well, are you communicating to him that you feel this way? because they're not mind readers and Mm -hmm. kind of learning from that. Um, But communication, I feel, is key in parenting and parenting styles as well. Talking to your partner like, hey, this is some things I'm okay with and this is something I'm not. So I grew up a little strict um, with what I ate. That's how my mom raised me. And I, as an adult, I'm grateful for it. So that's what I'm implementing in my parenting style is being a little more conscious of what I'm feeding them. So for the first one, I was, you know, blending foods, trying different things. And for the second one, I was just like, I'm not going through that. I'm just nursing. And uh, God, did I nurse him. Um, I had to cut him off. But, you know, having that support and but also communicating that support with your partner, I think is key. And it's we've grown so much together. And then Maria, where, where do you think at what stages so far, you know, in toddlerhood, infancy, where have you shined and where do you think your husband has shined? You know, what part of this has he shined in? I feel like it gets hard for me sometimes to think of my husband shining because I feel like I did a lot of the, you know, you do a lot of the work in infancy and you're just like, come on, bro. Like, when are you going to show up? You know, I need you. (laughs) 
So where do you think your husband shines? I think he really shined um, after I had the second one. And that kind of, I guess, just mm. began to transfer into my our relationship with our kids too. So I'm uh, right now, the my youngest, he is three, but he's still very much babied by me to a certain degree, you know, um, allowing him to like sleep on me. Sometimes we nap together and mm -hmm. I still pick him up and hold him or my five-year-old. It's a little hard to pick him up. <laughs> and even though he wants to be baby, you know, just <laughs> proportion wise, it's, it's not the same. So my husband kind of, um, since the second one has always paid more attention to our oldest, you know, where if I can't do anything, he steps in and kind of just is he's able to help more. So yeah, as an infant, I can, I can see how it feels very unfair and the way, um, responsibility is divided. It's, it's not 50, 50 at all. With the second one, I felt he mm -hmm. was able to take more cause he was able to help me where I couldn't. So I think that's where he was able to shine. And even now as our five-year-old is getting more curious, I feel he's shining there too. And kind of explaining, you know, his outlook to a five-year-old and then me kind of chiming in on certain topics. Um, my five-year-old, he's a very curious child. Um, I mean, this mm. is going to go into another topic, but, you know, talking about God right now is, is a uh, very interesting, <laughs> you know, him asking questions like, <laughs> why, why are we here? <laughs> oh God. I don't know. Oh my gosh, from a five-year-old. <laughs> so these are the questions I love to talk about, but I don't know how to talk to a five-year-old. And I think my right. husband is really good at kind of navigating those kind of conversations. So as our kids get older, I imagine him kind of taking more of that role of, you know, besides being a father, like more like a mentor to a certain degree to our kids and having two boys mm. as well, I think that perspective is needed for them. It's beautiful. When you're saying. Yeah. So like, that's so cool. Right, like, we're, we're all moms. Right. So we talk about how hard it is. And like me and Cindy, like our kids are still really young. Right. So we're still like, we know there's a shiny light far ahead when our kids are going to talk to us more and have more of those like intellectual conversations with us. It just feels really far right now. <laughs> and, um, mm -hmm. but to see right uh, it really spoke to me what you said earlier about how you grow with your spouse and then sometimes you grow together and sometimes you grow apart and i think those are just kind of like seasons in life things change because when you're dating you're not talking about like okay so what are we gonna feed our kids right like that's very taboo in the early dating stages like you don't want to scare anybody away you're talking like do you like dogs mm. do like you know you're talking about like these very superficial things and it's not until you're like <laughs> sleep deprived a kid crying everybody in the house is sick that you're like god damn it like just get the Tylenol or just do this or stuff like that and so it's like the growing with each other so like I like what you were saying because it's mm -hmm. true like you get to know your spouse in a different way and you get to know yourself right because we all like say um zero tv no junk food uh mm -hmm. I'm never gonna spank my child I'm never gonna raise my voice and it's until you're tested you're tested in that moment like Am I really going to go mm. through with it? Or like, I grew up in a household where I never got hit ever coming from a Mexican household. Like everybody jokes of the chancla and they're going to hate you and someone's going to spank you coming from a Mexican house where my mom never touches. My dad's never hit me and knowing like, that's the way I want to parent my child. 
and you know and like but then sometimes when you're just so frustrated and then kind of like taking that moment to like stop like don't don't do it but you're not tested right you have this ideology of how you're gonna do it and it's until you're in there and I, i like what you're saying like you grow together you learn each other's and i think communication right like that always comes back a lot of like communicating with your partners because i can relate with to maria about like my pride getting in the way where i'm gonna do it and i'm gonna do it right mm. and my way is the way and then when it fails it's like oh that's done okay fine let's try your way but taking that moment to be like i was wrong like it takes <laughs> a lot and so it's like communication until you're in it it's like I don't know if I can do this, but I'm glad you guys are like thriving as a family. Like that makes me excited. How I would answer that question. I don't know. Well, like, I think another thing <laughs> that I realized, um, you know, through my marriage and, you know, as through parenthood with my, with my husband is kind of looking at both of our strengths and weakness. So I don't do well when I'm hungry and so I, and I like to cook. So that's one thing that I think he kind of relies on me is to feed the family. And that's something I prefer, you know, as opposed to, I don't want to cook today, mm-hmm. you cook today. So um, I think kind of just expressing what you want to do and what you don't in advance, because I, I there are days, especially now that I'm kind of working a more stressful job in sales, there are days where I'm not in the mood. Um, but at the same time, I don't want like the idea of having to order pizza every time I'm not in the mood to cook. So telling him, I don't want you to order pizza. If I'm saying I'm not in the mood to cook, can you please put a little extra effort in this upcoming week? Because I have a lot going on to make dinner or to prep for dinner or to shop, you know, or I go shopping, tell me what you need so that you can cook what what you want to cook for, for us. Um, also, you know, some things is simplifying. I'm okay eating very plain, simple meals, fruit, vegetables. Like I don't necessarily need to cook. And my kids eat that way too. My kids will eat like fresh fruit and vegetables. And I mean, I'm glad they do, but in all reality and like my nursing, I do it because I have my lazy moments and it's just easier for them to eat an apple than for me to make a a whole meal and whatnot. So sometimes having those conversations, simplifying things and what are his strengths, you know, He's good at making sure we do certain things as a family where I will kind of back off on plans like, oh, I'm tired. I don't really want to. And so his encouragement is mm. where that it helps us, you know, kind of grow because sometimes that's what I needed. I need to get outside and I don't even know it. So, but yeah, just expressing that and using each other's strengths to, to work for the family. No, yeah, I think that's all really great advice. And I think even thinking about like whenever we'd have another sec- another baby, like I think even then I could see how the men shine at the second baby because I think also the women have to give up control of the first baby. <laughs> so we have to, we are forced to let go and kind of let them step in to take care of that baby word like right now with just one, it might be hard to kind of let, let it go, you know, cause you're like, is he going to do it right? Is he gonna do it how I would do it? Is he gonna make a mess? Like you're still like in that kind of, at least in my perspective prevents me sometimes from like allowing Chris to do stuff with him. Cause I'm like, this is going to be a train wreck, but I could see with the second one, I'll be like, just, just go. I don't care. Just get out of here. You know, I think, I think 
but um oh go ahead no 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 go ahead i think also having a second child it gives you um perspective on uh their personalities so when you have like i know when i had my first i was just like over and analyzing his personality like oh my god he's so he's so much like this and he's so much like that and you kind of say like, you know, you're not really sure if it's nature and nurture, but you look at a child and then you try to cater your parenting, you know, towards your child's strengths and weaknesses. And then a second one comes along and you're like, wow, this is completely different human being. And you realize that in their personality as they get older, like my son, I mean, they have a lot in common, but there's a lot of stark differences, even from the very beginning when they were born. I felt like my older one, maybe it's just also me. I'm not sure what percentage is actual me parenting versus natural to them. But I co-slept with my second one after I think three months. And that's just because I felt like it was easier for me to to, to just kind of reach out and see that my child is there. And I'm a very light sleeper. So it's something I was comfortable with. And I think Um, because Mm -hmm. of that, we always had separation anxiety from each other, me and him. So it was really hard for, for the idea of when a second one comes, like how that is going to affect our relationship. And then the second one comes and you see, you know, oh, wow, this child is way more independent than I, (laughs) than I anticipated. And they do their own thing. Like my second child, um, he was really good at sleeping in his bassinet by himself. And maybe because I was swallowing, uh, swaddling him better, but I felt like he uh, had a better sleeping routine as well. But when they get older, you see, okay, I need to talk to this one this way because they react better. So my my five-year-old, I've adjusted based on how my husband approaches it and how my kid approaches it as well. So I see sometimes now he's getting to the age where he's having more friends and he's wanting to be accepted. And so there are things that I've noticed like his personality changes as well. And so because of that, I have to change some of my parenting style. So for example, when I tell him to do something and he he doesn't want to do it, you know, depending on how he reacts will depend on how I react as well. And with the second one, you don't take the same approach. You take it based, you know, they shouldn't be correlated. It should be, they should be, they're two different human beings. You need to treat them you know, as their mm-hmm. own independent person, as opposed to trying to blend it. And I think that's the biggest difference in my parenting style. I don't, I, I treat my kids the same, but I take different approaches. For example, another example is my oldest, he's very open to experimenting in new foods. My second one is a little pickier. So I kind of change my approach. And even though I'm not going to give him junk food, if I really need him to get certain vitamins that he needs from his foods, I will kind of adjust what I'm feeding the whole family to kind of accommodate that everyone has all everything that they need nutrition wise. But there's a lot of differences with the second one. It's just crazy. <laughs> I know. I feel like that could be an episode in, in and of itself, huh? Maria, I was going to say when we were in high school, I'm remembering like you, I feel like you always talked about having a family and that was always like a big goal of yours and something you always looked forward to. Was it or has it been what you expected being a mom? <sighs> that person was very different. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it was many years ago. <laughs> yes. I think yes and no. When I was in high school, I always 
wanted to be, I always knew I wanted to be a mom. I think at that time I thought it was more accepted to be a younger mom. Um, maybe not a teen mom, but I kind of always knew that being a mom was something I wanted. And I went to college and got my degree. Um, but I think the biggest difference from then to now is the parenting style is very different than I thought it would be. Um, my mom was a stay at home mom. And so mm. I know, you know, as, even like before I got pregnant, she was always giving me advice and tips on motherly things. You know, she was telling me how important it was to nurse before, you know, I don't know, before I was even dating. So for a lot of, there were a lot of information or and advice she was giving <laughs> to me that was at the time irrelevant. Um, but my perspective was, you know, very old school mom, stay at home, take care of the kids. Husband goes to work, kind of takes care of the family that way. And there are roles and they're very divided. So when I became a mother, I think the biggest difference was understanding that the roles are not 50, 50, you know, and even our roles as a woman, a mother, a working woman, a sister, like those blend. We're not just one or the other. We're all of them. And so when I look at my old self in high school and I thought how important it was to have a family, I just thought the most important thing was doing exactly that, having kids of your own, as opposed to having children when you're ready and with the person that you want to have children with. Um, that, that, that didn't seem as mm. big of a deal but I'm glad to be with the partner that I have and to have the kids that I have um, because I felt any other way would feel impossible. And that would definitely affect my parenting style, my, my journey as a mother. So having a family is important, but at the same time, it shouldn't be your whole identity. That's so true. Cause yeah, we're, mm. I like what you're saying about like, wow. we are at different stages. We are just sisters or we're just daughters then we may become a girlfriend, a friend, a wife, but we don't stop being what we were before. So it's just kind of like blending in and different stages are going to shine through. There's some moments where we're just going to be more of a mother than we're a sister. And then our children may grow and we may be more of a wife and a sister. And we may, you know, we're, or we're a friend or we're whatever. And it's like not losing or not forgetting. We were that at one point and we still are, you know, they just may take a little bit of a backstage as we grow and as we, mm. you know, demand outside of our own kind of like need us and like being a working mom, maybe really tough when they're little, but maybe when they're older, it just gets easier because they don't need you as much. They're teenagers and they're not wanting to be with you anyways. So you may be able to focus more on your career or you may be able to foster more relationships outside of, you know, outside of your family unit, like maybe with friends and or taking some different roles. And I think we all see that. Um, we see it within our community, with our mothers, like they start volunteering more or they may start going out with friends more to coffee and stuff, right? Because we ourselves as children became more independent. Our mothers gain some freedom. And so... I like that what you're saying about, you know, just kind of like the different mm -hmm. blends of who we are and not forgetting who we were before. Right. Because I think I said in the past, it's like we bring forward some of those qualities. So some of that person we were, we don't just shed a skin and we're a brand new person. And I'm just a mom now. 
It's like, no, we still have all these other things that build us into the mother we right. are today. So thank you, Maria. For sure. And Maria, one more question before we, we end this. What would be your biggest piece of advice for someone that is about to become a mom or wants to become a mom? My biggest advice would be find your tribe. Um, understand what is it that you need. And it's going to require a little bit of effort, some more than others, but seek it, you know, kind of like a goal, you know, when you have your mindset on something, you, you strive for it. I think in motherhood, we don't really know what we're getting into. So find people that you kind of want to, whose energy you want to feed off of, you know, find people that enjoy the journey. And so, cause even though people who enjoy the journey, it's not all sunshine and roses. Like they have hard times too. They just, I guess have kind of proven that they could bounce back. And I'm not even sure if that's the right way, way to say it, but just find your tribe and, and feel comfortable to talk about your journey, um, whether it's with your partner, with the family or with a friend, but it's not something we should go through alone. So, yeah, I mean, I think when you look at motherhood historically, it's always been passing of information from one generation to the next. And I think we've kind of entered a new dynamic in the way family structure is run. It's not, you know, just because you have a mother doesn't mean you're necessarily close to her or she's maybe not the best person for advice. Um, I know I'm very close to my mom, but there are some things I don't share with her just because I don't think she'll understand what I go through. So I'm not looking, she will not mm -hmm. give me the empathy I guess I'm needing at the time. So kind of also know, right. you know, if you need someone to kind of teach you that self-love again, you know, seek that tribe of people. If you need someone who is more, I guess, um, what's the term? more focused on, you know, physical health, then kind of seek that group. Just try to figure out what is it that you want to be and just like any goal, kind of strive for it. And I think having that tribe and that communication is key in becoming a mother. You're not alone. Thank you so much, Maria. I think those were great words um, to share. And thank you for coming on with us. It was so good to see you. Yes, it's been a long time.